Welcome to everyone that's here tonight. Welcome to everyone that's online. My name is Mike Rutledge. I'm, uh, I oversee the arts, and I get to teach from time to time. So I'm very excited about this. We're kicking off a new series tonight. And if you were here last week, uh, you, you heard Derek sort of pre-launch or, or sort of pre-start the, uh, this series. But today, we're officially launching into this. Uh, and, the, and the series is called A Life Worth Dying For. And one thing, why I tell you about Derek is he, he, he used a quote, and I want us to reread this quote, because to me, the quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that he shared last week is just an absolutely pinpoint accurate statement about where we're going in this series. And here it is. It'll be up on the screens. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. There are some things so dear, something so precious, something so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something he will die for, he isn't fit to live. I think that's a very, very true statement. And he probably is likely referring to what he decided to give his life to, and that was uh, freedom of humanity and the equality of all people, the elimination of oppression and racism. It's what he gave his life to help accomplish. And he found meaning and he found life. Now, this is true that until we find the thing that we're willing to die for, we probably have not yet discovered what we're living for. And, uh, you know, I, let me just put it this way. We love lots of stuff. Right? We love things, I, you know, or you will say things like, I'm dying for this. But the truth of the matter is, you know, like I, I, I love music, but I'm not willing to die defending, you know, the honor of some song lyric or something like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not willing to die arguing over the superiority of a certain guitar brand, the Gibson is the best. But anyway, I'm not going to die over that, right? I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee, but if I have to go without that brand, I'll be okay. And what, here, here's what's interesting. What we see is that when people, when we start to put our belief and our hope and start living for temporal things, believing that those things are worth dying for, we actually stop living. And when I say we stop living, I mean that in a, in a literal sense, that Actually, the statistics bear this out. Over 20 years, from 1999 to 2018, the suicide rate increased by 35%. Okay? That's a huge jump. And I would submit, and we actually, as a matter of fact, here in this body, we've just recently experienced a family who's gone through this very thing. And it's heartbreaking. But I would submit this, that the reason this happened is not because someone found something to truly live for or die for. I would submit that it's because rather than believing that something that wasn't worth dying for was, or they get to a place, such a place, we get to such a place in our mind where we believe that there's nothing worth giving our life to. 
And so we take our life instead. And I hate to start with such heavy stuff, but I said at the beginning, I'm excited about this message. And the reason I'm excited about this message is because every person here in the room, every person watching online, every person in the world, I believe, is on a quest to find out what is my life supposed to be about and what am I willing to give my life to. And it's a spectrum, I'm sure. Some of us are probably further down the road and some of us are not really just getting going, maybe. But what's exciting about this to me is that Jesus Christ gives the answer to this question directly. And as we move through this series, and even today, we're going to see the answer that he offers for us. We're going to discover four really important things during this whole series. The first is this, that your life is worth dying for. It was, and it still is. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his, his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he died for us. Your life, my life, is, was worth and still is worth dying for. Second thing we discover, we're going to discover is that Jesus' life is worth dying for and that ultimately the best plan in my life is to die to self and live to Jesus. The third thing is that other people's lives are worth dying for. And John 15 tells us that greater love has no man than this. He'll lay down his life for who? A friend. The greatest demonstration of love is when we're willing to lay down our life for someone else. And the fourth thing we're going to discover is this, that the only way I can live that life is by dying to self. I cannot live for myself and live for you. I have to pick. Matthew 16 For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if you want to find your life, the best way you can do that is by dying to self and living to Jesus. Now, we're going to go about discovering this truth by spending some significant time looking through the book of Luke and specifically exploring the life, the teachings, and the miracles of Jesus. And we're going to spend like some time, I don't mean like a week and a half, we're going to spend like a few months here going through all the miracles. And, uh, but more than just talking about the te- his teachings and his miracles and his life, the part that's most exciting to me is that we are going to try and understand on a deeper level How does that impact my life today? And what difference does that mean to me about this story that's 2,000 years old? And that's what I want to unpack. And we're calling today's message, wait for it. I mean, that's that's the title is wait for it. So, (laughs) right? Thank you. Thank you. No, the message is called wait for it. And what we're going to discover is that the promised Messiah and the promises of the Messiah were worth waiting for, and they still are to this day. The problem is that waiting isn't awesome, and truth be told, we're pretty terrible at waiting. I I went and looked. uh, There was a study done where they studied people's habits to see how well we do with waiting. And part of me was like, I can't even believe it. And part of me was like, yep, that seems about right. (laughs) 16 seconds of waiting for a page, web page to load is as long as we can stomach. 16 seconds. 25 seconds of waiting at a traffic light is all we can manage. I will neither confirm nor deny that there's a light by my house that is optional. (laughs) 
And listen here, you people, 22 seconds before you start swearing, it says, at your television or computer because something isn't streaming properly. 22 seconds, you cursors. 14 minutes is the max we'll wait at a restaurant for our food before we're ready to light up the waitress. And 30 seconds waiting in a line before we start line jumping. You know that whole thing, 30 seconds, he's jumping on the line. Wait, he wasn't behind me. He's going to get there first. We're not good at it. And the problem is, yes, we're not very good at it, but also waiting only works when we feel like the payoff was there, right? I'll tell you a story. When Susie and I had just been married, the first couple of years of our marriage, um, I, I've always been involved in music, you know, as an adult. And so I was, this is back in Michigan, and I was doing some session work, and I was producing some, some bands, some local bands in Detroit and playing shows. And I'd get a little bit of money each time I would do it. And I really wanted a guitar. I mean, I had a guitar. I wanted another guitar I wanted to buy in. Um, but we didn't have tons of money. And so I said to Susie, hey, here's what I think we should do. I think we, what we should do is I should take a credit card and buy the guitar. That's what I thought we should do. And uh, Susie, Susie had, she, she just had this revolutionary idea. And we had at our house this, it was like a shoebox, a little smaller, but it was actually shaped like a heart, and it had a lid on it, and it was like this kind of pastel tie-dye sort of box. I don't know what you would use something like that for, except for this. She said, and this is going to blow some of your minds. She said, rather than that, what if you took the money when it came in, we put it in this box, you save it, and then when you have enough, you go to the store, you give it to the store, and they'll give you a guitar and you bring it home. I'm like, wait a second, can you really? And for some of you here today, by the way, if you hear nothing else, that might be the most important part <laughs> that you've heard. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the reason I share that story is because the payoff was worth it. I've had that guitar for about 25 years now. It's my favorite guitar. And I'm so glad I did it. I didn't have to pay whatever the interest is on credit cards. The payoff was worth it, so it was worth waiting. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Luke and explore, but wait for it. Before that, I just want to talk about the accounting of Jesus' life by the author Luke, okay? Um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but there are four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. So maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you've had this thought. Why do we have four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible? And actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of share a lot of the same stories. So maybe you've wondered that. Well, the answer is this, is because the author, each of the different authors, is writing to present a different perspective about Jesus to a different audience. Okay, And Luke declares his right from the get-go, at the very beginning of the book, the first four verses, he says, I, there, and he already declares, hey, there are many accounts of the life of Jesus already. There's many of them. But he wants to do what he calls an orderly narrative because he's carefully investigated using what is called the eyewitness tradition because he was not actually an eyewitness of Jesus' life. So he interviewed people who were. And he did this because he wanted to, it says, demonstrate all that Jesus had fulfilled. 
So Luke is writing to help people understand all that Jesus had fulfilled. And he includes two accounts right around his birth, one before birth and one after birth. Strike that, one after his birth, because after birth is a terrible thought. (laughs) Both prophets claim he is the fulfillment of Scripture and the Messiah. Because this is the story that Luke wants us to understand, and he wants to focus on the social implications of Jesus' ministry, okay? And he launches into his ministry by clearly proclaiming who this is good news for, and he says it's for the poor. Now, really quickly, let me just, let me just explain something to you. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, the word for poor is ane, A-N-I, ane. And it, it's, it's broader than just financial wealth or lack thereof. It has to do with, like, low social status, like, you know, the dregs of society. Uh, it has to do with maybe the infirmed and the sick people. It has to do with social outsiders that weren't of your faith or they weren't of your uh, nationality. It has to do with, uh, like, people whose poor life choices put them in terrible situations. That when it's talking about poor, and that's who, that's who Jesus came to declare he was good news for. Now, he does this then after he announces, he does this by laying out, Luke lays out a block of stories, one after another, demonstrating the impact that Jesus had. First, he recounts a story of Jesus uh, um, you know, there's a demon-possessed man who's in the temple, and he releases the man from de- demonic oppression. And then there's a woman who's bedridden uh, that he heals. And then there's a guy with leprosy that he heals. And then there's a person who's paralyzed that, he's, that he heals. And then, interestingly, there's a story of Levi, who's a tax collector. Now, he wasn't poor financially, but, but the tax collectors were really thought of poorly because they were thought of as morally and ethically corrupt because the way they went about getting their money was morally and ethically corrupt. And he shares the story of being included into Jesus' inner circle, and he even shows Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Those are the stories that Luke lays out for us to see. And why does he do that? He does that because... He wants to demonstrate the expanding sphere of the people invited into experiencing the healing power of Jesus. Not just the elite, but everyone, and even the dregs of society and the social outcasts. And it all begins with a public announcement by Jesus in his hometown that, quite frankly, does not go over so well. And that's where I want to start today, looking Luke chapter 14. Four, verse 14, and let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. But, dun-dun-dun, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. This is actually him reading Isaiah chapter 61 now in our Bibles. And he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me 
to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a direct reference to the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, they let slaves go. They returned land to previous landowners. It was a great celebration. And he's saying, that's what's going on. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the tenant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I want you to understand that this language may be a little foreign to us, but to them it was completely, was this clear? Crystal. It's a reference to a movie. Anyway, uh, it's a great movie. You guys don't know that movie for real? Anyway, this was very clear messaging by Jesus to these people. Uh, when he says, he anointed me. Now, anointing in the Old Testament was used as a signification of uh, entering into a specific office. You were anointed the king. You were anointed as a priest. So it's like an appointing, right? And it's a, a symbolic uh, ritual that happens. So you, it's a public declaration. And the Hebrew word is the same root as Messiah or promised deliverer. And the Greek word Messiah is translated Christ, which is the title given to Jesus in the New Testament. And this was interesting. It signifies his office as anointed savior and alludes to his spiritual qualifications for the task of saving the people of Israel. That's what he said. Today it's fulfilled. He's basically saying, and not even basically, but completely saying, God has sent me. He anointed me. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for, and I just told you how I'm going to go about doing it. And this claim was way too big for his previous neighbors and childhood friends to stomach. They're like, dude has serious delusions of grandeur. Oh, Jesus, the carpenter's son. They say, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter's? I mean, come on. Oh, Jesus, the carpenter's son. He's got all this information that the poor and impoverished need. Oh, isn't that interesting? He claims to be the, the anointed one from God. And the answer to that question is an absolute yes. That's You are hearing me clearly. In a nutshell, they believed that the Messiah would be the long-awaited deliverer, conquering king, military hero, political champion, even insurrectionist that would overthrow the government. And that is not at all what Jesus just presented. The people were looking for a Messiah that was going to overthrow human power structures and human authorities and put them back in charge. But Jesus came to do battle in the spiritual realm and break spiritual strongholds and give back power to the powerless and give us the life that's truly worth living because we know what's worth dying for. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, Jesus says. I'm here to bring you the life, and I've just told you how I want to do it. He says, I'm not here for my own good. I'm not here to put you back in charge. I'm not here so we can accrue lots of stuff and live the charmed life. That's not my purpose. I'm not here to help you build your own kingdom. 
I want to give back power to the powerless. And I want to give you the life that's worth dying for because it's worth living for. And then he went on to demonstrate this kind of lifestyle by dying for each and every one of us. And 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The life worth living for is dying to self and living for others. That's what Jesus wanted us to understand. And if you want to know one way to check out if you've got this kind of figured out, I want to share this with you. It's to understand if you're thinking about it in the correct perspective. Remember I said it all begins with his grand announcement that doesn't go so well? Well, I left out a couple verses at the end. Because after he said, yeah, this is fulfilled. What you just heard, it's fulfilled. I'm here. I'm the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, prophets aren't accepted in their own town. And look at this, the last verse of chapter 4 in Luke. It says this, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Do you know, do you guys ever see It's a Wonderful Life? You know the scene where Clarence is wrestling with the police officer, and then all of a sudden he's just gone? Well, they got that from right here. Because <laughs> that's what happened. They are not in any way. See, they had it flipped on its head because they weren't thinking about what to live for. They weren't thinking about what they were willing to die for. They weren't even thinking about what they were waiting for. You know what they were thinking about? what they're willing to kill for. And that's not the same thing. See, they were protecting themselves and their personal kingdoms and their interests, and they determined the best way to deal with this was to get rid of anything that challenged them and their thoughts. And hold on. Before we get too judgy, we do exactly the same thing. Now, you may not be ready to push someone off a cliff or kill someone. But too often, when we don't like the waiting that we're doing for Jesus, we're ready to push him off the cliff and anoint a new king. And I'll tell you what, that king usually has your name on it. See, we may not be willing to kill other people, but I will tell you, we hate, we covet, we deceive. We put our trust in temporal things, crown ourselves, because we're not seeing what we want to happen, and we decide, I'm done waiting. It's just too long. I'm not waiting for these promises any longer, and I don't like the promises that I feel like Jesus is offering to me right now. And in that moment that you quit waiting for God to follow through on the promises that he's made to you, you kill the chance to see if the payoff is worth it. And here's the terrible news you may never see the payoff in this life. You may. I know my wife has been praying for her father to receive Jesus for 42 years. It hasn't happened. As a matter of fact, he seems no closer today than he did 42 years ago. 
but we're going to wait because maybe it's not just about him finding Christ. Maybe Jesus is doing something in us as we continue to pray for him. James 4 says this way, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you receive. You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Let me just tell you, if you're asking God to give you stuff, to build up your own kingdom, don't expect him to follow through or comply with your demands. See, that's not a savior and that's not a messiah. That's a genie in a bottle. And actually, if you think back about your own life, there are many times where you've asked God for things or you've prayed for things and you didn't get it. And in the end, you realize the best thing that could have happened to me was that I did not get what I wanted. And here's the thing, and I'm going to tell you this not because, oh, look, I can relate. I'm just going to be really honest with you. This is a place where I find myself, and Susie and I both find ourselves far too often. And I'd venture a guess you find yourself in this place as well, where you're struggling to accept that my way may not be God's way, or that he actually is the Messiah, or that his promises are true and that they can come true in my life. And in that moment, I risk walking away and stopping waiting and I miss the payoff. And then I hear this voice. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Isaiah 40, 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But I don't feel renewed sometimes. I just feel exhausted. And I don't feel like I'm soaring like an eagle. I feel like I'm grounded. And then I think, right, if I can't control my emotions, I'll just let my emotions and my feelings control me. (laughs) And I don't feel like God's coming through. I think he's asking me to wait far too long. I'm out. I give up. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we've probably found ourselves in that place. And here's what I want to say. If that's you, if that's where you are today, if that's where you've been, if that's where you're headed, Jesus just says, no, wait, wait, because my plan is ultimately better than yours. So I'm going to have the band. You guys can come on back up. We're going to transition into a time of just musical worship at the end here. But I want to pray for us because it's, it's a tricky time to be living, isn't it? So much going on, so much clamoring for our attention.
And I want to encourage you with every ounce. I'll just tell you this. There are times, Susie and I, I started to say this, and I kind of interrupted my own thought, but I want to say this. We find ourselves, and you probably do too, you know, you're praying and thinking and worrying about that thing and talking till you fall asleep at night and you wake up the next morning and it's waiting there to greet you and re-engage the conversation. And God's saying, don't quit. I am the Messiah. I'm worth waiting for. And even if you don't receive what you're hoping in this life, you will in the afterlife. Will you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just, uh, we confess that we're terrible at waiting sometimes and Sometimes we just have to tell our heart what's true so that it can start to believe with our head. The promises that you made will sustain us. And in those moments where we're struggling to quit on the belief that you are the Messiah, that your way is better than our ways, we pray that you would scream loudly in our ears, wait for it, just wait for it. that we would lean into you all the more. And we wouldn't push you off the cliff and put ourselves as the king and try and build our own kingdoms, but that we would believe that you have our best intentions in mind and you came to give us life, the full life. We ask this in your name. Amen.